The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. 1966. Part 1. January through June.
it's 1966. This is the thing, actually, that, that we are more interested, really, in, in making music than we are um, probably in actually performing it, because we're not very good performers, you know. We're, we haven't ever been able, really, to do what we've been able to do on records, on the stage. And also, when you, we play these big concerts, you know, it gets a bit more impossible each time to sort of get over to the people what you're trying to get over. At the start of 1966, heard this new sound jumping about the charts. trying to work it out, with Paul giving interviews to the press. But all the girls preferably had to be sort of blonde and, and look like Bridget and pout a lot. So I know John and I kind of had these sort of little secret talks where we kind of intimated that we were, without saying it actually, you know, it sounds crass when you say it, but 
the idea was to sort of turn your girlfriend into Bridget Bardot, mm. Liverpool's answer to. So my girl was Dot Roan, Dorothy Roan I was going out with, and John was going out with Cynthia, and we kind of didn't sort of double date, but we were both going out with girls at the same time. And they both, we, I think we got them both to go blonde and wear miniskirts. On January 3rd, on the American TV entertainment show Hullabaloo, the Beatles were featured performing via their new vehicle, the promotional music minifilm. The songs they performed were We Can Work It Out, and Day Tripper. Welcome to the first hullabaloo of 1966. A song, Chim Chim Cherie, with a course from Mary Poppins, which was the number one best-selling album of 1965. And that's what this first hullabaloo of the new year is all about. The best of the sights and sounds of the young world during the past year. And I guess the most popular sights and sounds of 1965 came from four young Liverpudians named John, George, Paul, and Ringo. Now why should I sit here talking about the Beatles when we can see and hear them, huh? Oh, by the way, now, they don't have an NBC peacock in London, so the boys are going to be in black and white. So now, don't get up to adjust your set. You just keep screaming there at home, all right? Here they are, one of their two current big hits, Day Tripper. Hey, the Beatles!
a recent article, Time Magazine put down pop music, and they referred to uh, Day Tripper as being about a prostitute, oh, yeah. and Norwegian Wood about as being about a lesbian. Oh, yeah. Now, I just wanted to know what what your intent was when you wrote it, and what sh what your feeling is about the Time Magazine criticism of the music that is being written today. We were just trying to write songs about prostitutes and lesbians, that's all. <laughs>
either on children, yes, but I'd like some a bit later on, but I'm a little more for having a laugh with us to be rather than just being tied down at the moment. When you have them, I don't know. Do you agree with that? Uh, I don't know. I don't mind. Yours, when you have them, when you want them in the are we going to stay out of the uh, limelight? Uh, yes. Out of your own choice? Yes. And what about the family? How many children do you want to have? Um, about three. Thirty-nine. Do you want to take Their first date was chaperoned by Beatles manager Brian Epstein. And they clicked. Can I have um, the story of your romance? Patty, how does it all start? Um... Well, we met on the set of Hard Day's Night, and George and the others were filming it, and I was chosen to play a part of a school girl by Dick Lester Walter-Shenty. Um, Good old Dick Lester Walter-Shenty. <laughs> yes. Well, I've never been for them. And take it off from there. What happened then? Um, well, actually, I tried. I asked Patty out when we were making the film, and she said no, <laughs> which is very embarrassing at the time. <clears throat> but it all worked out right in the end. On for ABC. <laughs> On February 11th, a new British hit breaks onto the charts. Columbia Records in Britain releases Woman, performed by Peter and Gordon. The song was attributed to an art student living in Paris, Bernard Webb. But it was actually Paul McCartney under a pseudonym to see if he could write a hit if no one knew who wrote it. You have written uh, quite a few numbers for Peter and Gordon, and I understand they don't like it because they think that it's you writing the song that makes it popular. Do you plan to write any more songs for him? You know, if we write songs for they ask us to write songs for them if we, if we do it. I mean, they don't mind it. They like it, but it's... People come up and say, ah, we see you're just getting in on the Lennon-McCartney bandwagon. That's that's why um, they did that one with, with our names not on it, woman. Because everyone sort of thinks that's the reason they get hits. It's not true, really. The song reached number 14 in the U.S. and number 28 on the British charts. Yeah. 
and Gordon Waller striking a solid gold note with Woman, a new composition by Bernard Webb, a student from Paris. Later in the month, someone fitting Webb's description is spotted on holiday in Switzerland with actress Jane Asher, Paul's much-publicized fiancé. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just the girl for me and I want all the world to see we've met. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way And I'd have never been aware But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight la, da, 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 da. Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again I have never known the like of this I've been alone and I have missed things and kept out of sight But other girls were never quite like this Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again Falling, yes I'm falling And she keeps calling me back again I've just seen her face, I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just a girl for me, and I want all the world to see we've met. Mm -hmm. Falling, yes, I'm falling, and she keeps calling me back again. Falling, yes, I'm falling, and she keeps calling me back again. Trouble brews in Liverpool, as on February 28th, three days after George's birthday, the Cavern Club is closed down by the official receiver. Owner Roy McFall has debts amounting to £10,000, which he apparently spent on improving the club. Marking the end to an important era, the rough-and-rowdy seaport music scene will never be the same. No Beatle-like sounds can come from the cellar club again. Angry fans barricade themselves inside and vow never to see the club closed. On March the 1st, the film of the 65 Shea Stadium concert had its premiere on BBC television. And on March the 4th, the London Evening Standard published an interview between journalist Maureen Cleave and John Lennon, in which John said he thought the Beatles were more popular than Jesus and that Christianity would shrink and vanish. Cynthia Lennon. John had given a long interview to Maureen Cleave, a journalist for the London Evening Standard. She was a friend of his, and it was perhaps because of this that he let down his guard and said... Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. 
I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. It was a spur-of-the-moment comment, and he didn't necessarily expect anyone else to agree with it, but he'd been asked for his opinion and gave it. He knew it was a controversial thing to say, but he had never shied away from saying what he thought because others might not like it. When the interview was published, there was no fuss, and neither John nor anyone around him thought any more of it. There was no reaction from the British public. On Friday, March 25th, at the photographic studio called The Veil in West London, the Beatles recorded an interview with Tom Lodge, a disc jockey for the offshore radio station titled Radio Caroline, to be included in the NEMS disc called Sound of the Stars. The disc was a flexi-disc for the newspaper The Music Echo, which was now owned by NEMS Enterprises. Right, well this is the big recording session with the four, the big four that is, the one and only Paul, John, George and Ringo. How about that? Thank you very much indeed, John. And uh, now I'd like a few words from, from you, my Del Palo. Well, uh, it's nice to be in the actual captain's kitchen, and the captain himself is stirring up a right old brew. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, you, know, you know what this is for? This is for actually um, a little paper called Disc and uh, Music Echo. Music Disc, mm, yes. And uh, mm. it's going to be one of the biggest productions, of course, across the country. Biggest, big. A lot, lot of push behind it. A lot of big people behind that, you know, a lot of big people behind it. Yes, mate, yes. And how about you, Paul? How about it? Ringo's a Protestant. <laughs> I'm proud of it! Yes! <laughs> anyway, how would you like to be a, be a, a disc jockey at sea? Um, I wouldn't even like to be. Well, uh, maybe. I wanted to be. <laughs> you wanted to be? No, I oh, thought I'd do that, baby. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't play a few records in between the breaks. throwing up all over the records as you're trying to play them. <laughs> yeah. I think they're all queer, you know, all them fellas on the boats. <laughs> when, when did you first ha have sex, Ringo? Oh. I don't remember. I was about three, I think. They called it Diddy Winky. <laughs> when are you making an, another film? Uh, we don't know yet. No, we haven't got a script yet. We haven't got a... John and I haven't got a script yet. Uh, we haven't got a script yet, either. I reckon they haven't got a script yet. No script. No. Thank you. And uh, have you got a plan for a, a new release? Um... Got have we? Yes, yeah, we have. Well, we're going to record soon, um, next week you or two. I have whispers. I have <laughs> whispers. <laughs> We've got to a single out. We're getting a single out, yeah. I did hear a couple of people talking about it the other day. <laughs> have you written it yet? But I'll get no, in on that. No. Billy Jade Kramer's the right one for us. <laughs> can, can, can you all say goodbye, you. goodbye now? Yes. Goodbye now. Goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, Caroline. Thank you very much, Ringo. Goodbye, Tom. Goodbye. Very nice seeing you. Thank you, George. Over to Paul. Goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, Holy Red Terror. And all the rest of you. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye, Tom, Caroline, you know, all them. Thank you very much indeed, John. Wonderful, wonderful. Right, well, I think we'll call that a day, and uh, we well, look forward to seeing you a week very, very, so very, very soon in, in the future. Thank you very much indeed, all of you. Following the interview, the group was photographed by Robert Whitaker. The group posed in black suits as well as butcher smocks with meat, doll parts, and bird cages about. These photos would be later known as the famous Butcher photos. It was meant as a satire on Capitol Records. It was believed that Capitol had butchered some of their songs in the way they remixed them, and that they left some songs off albums for later release. In late March, at 57 Wimpole Street, London, home of Paul's girlfriend Jane Asher's parents, where Paul was living in the family's spare bedroom in the attic, Paul recorded on tape his latest composition. 
All the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? During the three years Paul McCartney lived at Wimpole Street, Paul got to know not only Jane Asher's circle of friends, but her brother Peter's as well. Perhaps the most important among them was John Dunbar, who was in tune with London's avant-garde scene. It was through John Dunbar that Paul met the art dealer Robert Fraser and became involved in starting Indica Bookshop and Gallery. Paul had books delivered to Wimpole Street and indexed and sorted them in the house's basement with Jane, while awaiting the bookshop's opening. John Dunbar, Peter Asher, and Barry Miles had their eye on a small storeroom located at Six Masons Yard, London. Paul would frequently visit Barry Miles and his wife Sue, who were living at 15 Hanson Street, which was a five-minute walk from Wimpole Street. Barry Miles recalls. In the summer of 1965, Paul McCartney became a regular visitor to my flat in Hanson Street in the West End of London. He was very interested in the contemporary art scene, and I would play him avant-garde jazz records and electronic music and lend him books and magazines. In turn, Paul introduced me to R&B and little-known Motown tracks. We discussed the idea of releasing an audio equivalent of the avant-garde magazines where, instead of a review of a poetry reading, listeners would hear extracts from the reading itself, or maybe clips from concerts, rehearsals, or even items from the third program that people might have missed. It was agreed that what we needed in order to do this was a small studio where writers and musicians could record without the overheads of a commercial facility. We'd heard that Beatles manager Brian Epstein was buying a small office building and we secured space on the top floor where a recording studio was to be installed. The core team consisted of myself, John Dunbar, Ian Somerville and Peter Asher. Our first release was to feature a long electronic piece by Paul McCartney, a mutter poem by Pete Brown based on the work of Kurt Schwitters, and a story. But when Epstein decided against buying the building, Paul found us temporary accommodation at Ringo Starr's old flat in Montague Square. In the spring of 1966, Paul rented the flat Ringo Starr owned at 34 Montague Square when he moved out to Sunny Heights. Paul turned it into a recording studio with the help of an electrician named Ian Somerville. Ian was working on the electrical work at Six Masons Yard prior to its opening for the Indica Bookshop and Gallery. Here's a recording that Paul made with Miles during the spring of 1966. Yes. It is. I bring it. I bring it. And uh, well, it all started there. There. <laughs> there. It all started there. It's back on the docks. My mother was a seaman, and uh, my father was a Jew. My granddad came from Ireland. And that you know. What's happened to the tape recorder? The carousel of life. I see you, Jack. There is a wizard, too, really. No, honestly, it's a biffo, do this. 
child. I the sounds of a happy party um, recorded live at the um, Apollo basement in Montague Square. Can we have some echo on this, please. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing what it does to your voice, isn't it? Oh, not half. It's really nice. Really nice. Well, I've only just come down for the really exhibition, nice. but... Well, I mean, we don't get I'm paid, amazed you know, at what I well, see. No, no, quite. I mean, I didn't uh, know right. the modern world. No, I wouldn't have believed it myself either. No, such a I wouldn't place. have done. I mean, they seem to be running. Let's go to Paul paid for Ian Somerville to equip the flat at Montague Square with a pair of Revox tape recorders, microphones and so on. And Somerville moved into the building so as always to be on hand to engineer. No records ever got made there, but Paul used the studio to demo songs such as Eleanor Rigby. I beg your pardon, sir? <laughs> Hello? We're still on the line, you know. We don't know what's going on just yet. Um, don't panic. And, uh, keep well, I'm afraid there's a crinkle in the tape. I'm afraid there's a crinkle in the tape for the high face super of the surfers. April, springtime in London, means the birds and the beetles. are outside EMI Studios trying to glimpse the Beatles, who are inside recording. Throughout the spring, the Beatles spent most of their time in the recording studio. April 6, 1966, saw the Beatles back at work in EMI Studios number 3 to record the start of their next LP record. The song recorded on this day was John's, titled Mark One. John showed up at this, with this song after we'd had a couple of days off sometime. Paul McCartney. I remember being in Brian Epstein's house in Chapel Street in Belgravia. We kind of met up. And John had this song which was all on the chord of C, which in our minds was okay, like Indian music's all on one chord. It's a perfectly good idea. Um, I was wondering how George Martin was going to take it, because it was a bit of a radical departure, you know, at least we'd had three chords and maybe a change for the middle eight even, you know. Suddenly this was just John just strumming on C rather earnestly. And George took it very well. He said, rather interesting, John, it's jolly interesting, you know. So we got in, we recorded it, fairly straightforwardly rock and roll band thing.
The title was eventually changed. John uh, had got hold of Timothy Leary's adaptation, I think, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, which is a pretty interesting book. Uh, you know, just I think for the first time we got this idea that you know when you sort of uh, like the Egyptian dead thing, you sort of die, then you lay in state for a few days, and then some of your handmaidens come. You know, this huge voyage rather than the British version, which is just you pop your clogs. George Harrison. Well, I'm interested in that. I've just been thinking lately why, you know, it was supposed to be the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It doesn't really say that in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. It was, I think, based more upon a book by Timothy Leary called The Psychedelic Experience. On April 7th at EMI Studios London, work continues on John's song, Mark One now called Tomorrow Never Knows. Paul McCartney. And we needed a solo. Producer George Martin. It was Paul, actually, who experimented with his Grundig at home, taking off the erase head of his, of his uh, tape machine and putting on a loop of tape and saturating the tape with sound. I had two Brunel machines, and I used to be able to uh, create tape loops with them. 
And so I brought a little plastic bag with about 20 tape loops in. And we, uh, we got machines from all the other studios and with pencils and the aids of glasses and stuff, got all these loops to run. And I think we, uh, I'm not sure, we might have 12 recording machines. We normally only needed one to make a record. We're all running with these loops, all fed through the desk. And then you just brought, they were on, it's actually like how a lot of guys mix now. A lot of the dance people mix like that, get it all running eternally and then pick into it and out of it. So that's how we did the solo in uh, Tomorrow Never Knows. The group also worked on a new song from Paul, titled Got to Get You Into My Life. With George Martin supplying the one-note organ and Ringo on hi-hat cymbal, here is Take 5, recorded sometime after 11 p.m. on that day. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find then. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind then. You didn't run, you didn't lie, you knew I wanted just to hold you. And had you gone, you knew in time we'd meet again, for I told you. What can I be when I'm with you? I want to stay there If I'm true, I'll never leave And if I do, I know the way there
On Monday, April the 11th, the Beatles worked at EMI Studios No. 2 on George Harrison's first Indian-flavored composition, which was untitled at present. It was later dubbed Granny Smith after the Apple. The first track of Take One had George singing to his own acoustic guitar accompaniment. Each day just goes so fast I turn around, it's past You don't get time to hang a sign on me so short a new one can't be bought but what you got means such a lot to me As the Beatles continue to record their next LP record, George Martin is asked if the group's recording success is now a formula. There was no real calculation, there was no um, professional songwriting, producing, they're going to do, this is the way we're going to make our hit records. It was gut reaction mainly. It's still April. The Beatles still recording hopeful hits with George Martin. On April 13th, at EMI Studios No. 3 in London, the Beatles worked on a new Paul McCartney song. Paperback writer, take one. Okay, go. Here it goes, Paul. Here it goes, Paul. Here it goes, Paul. It's on. One, two, three, four. On April 14th, back at EMI, work continued on Paul's song Paperback Writer. Also, they worked on a new Lennon song called Rain. On this day, recorded backwards John Lennon vocals. The short reprise at the very end of the song was added.
On Thursday, April 21st, at EMI Studios London, George Harrison leads the Beatles in a session for his new song named Taxman. Here is Take 11, recorded around 12 a.m. in Studio 2. One for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man Should 5% appear too small Be thankful I don't take it all I'm the tax man Yeah, I'm the tax man If you drive a car, car I'll tax the street If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet One week later, on April 28th, as John and Paul sat in Studio 2's control room, George Martin conducted a double-string quartet consisting of four violinists, two viola players, and two cellists, performing the score written for Paul's new song. Thank you. 
these recording sessions, BBC radio personality Brian Matthews stopped by EMI Studios to inquire about their new album. question I must ask you. When's it going to be finished? Do we hope? It should week. be finished in about two or three weeks' time, really. Yeah. That is because if it's not, then we won't be able to get another holiday. Oh, <laughs> and anyway, we, we'll never be able to get another holiday in before we go away again. We don't so. get it done soon, Gov. We'll lose our job. No, no, please. don't want to please, please, don't May 1st, 1966, the Beatles gave their last ever UK concert at the New Musical Express Poll Winners Concert at Wembley. Hello again, good afternoon ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the New Musical Express Poll Winners Concert here at the Empire Pool Wembley. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we come now to the high spot of our programme, the event which this concert is really all about. In other words, the presentation of the New Musical Express Awards to the artists voted the most outstanding in popular music for 1965. And ladies and gentlemen, to receive his award as runner-up world musical personality and Britain's top vocal personality, John Lennon. John top vocal group and the world's top vocal group, The Beatles. If the English fans and fanatics only knew, the Beatles' appearance at the poll winner's concert, Wembley Empire Pool, on May 1, 1966, was to be their last stage appearance as The Beatles in Britain. There would soon be no more on-the-road mishaps for Mal Evans to tell. When you're on the road, there's no allowance for mistakes. You've got to do it right the first time. I remember the first time we opened the Chicago one tour. That's an example of something that can go wrong, you know, from my point of view as a road manager. There was a balcony that went around either side of the uh, stage. And uh, when all the other groups were on stage that preceded them, everything was going beautifully. You know, because everybody was backstage trying to see the Beatles. Now, when the Beatles went on stage, everybody crowded into the 
balcony. And suddenly the beat lamps were going off, one after the other, the beat lamps were going off. We couldn't find a cause. I changed amplifiers, I was going crazy. The main power supply was coming to the stage along the balcony. And whenever the crowd on the balcony got excited and stamped their feet, they disconnected the power to the stage. Now that's something you can't foresee, you know. You can test things and test things, rehearsals. Like um, the first time we did the Washington gig, we did the Ed Sullivan show in New York, then we traveled by train to Washington, you know? And it was in the middle of the stadium, indoor stadium, and it had a revolving um, rostrum for the drum kit, which had an electric motor, presser switch, the thing revolved, so that they could face one side of the audience, revolve it, quarter turn, face the other side of the, you know, so everybody got a good look at them. The actual show, the damn thing wouldn't move. I had to get on the stage every two numbers and push it round by hand. You know, there's things that were unexplainable that just went wrong. There they go, the world's top vocal group and likely to be for a long time, the Beatles. And that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes our pole winners concert for this year. Hope you've all had a ball we have backstage and we look forward to seeing you again round about this same time next year. So. God bless you all. See you again next year. Bye-bye for now. On May 14th, it's reported in Melody Maker that in Denmark they have sold one million records. Not bad for a country with only four million people. On May 19th and 20th, on location at Cheswick Gardens and House in Cheswick, London, made promo films for both sides of their new single. Paperback writer backed with Rain. They were both directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg.
Aspinall. We really couldn't fit in all the live um, television shows that people wanted us to do around the world, you know, whether it was Shindig, Ed Sullivan Show, Top of the Pops, Thank You Lucky Stars, and then stuff in France and Germany, Australia, you know. So to accommodate those people, right, we, uh, we decided that uh, if we just made a, we call them promo films, you know, we, if we made a promo film um, of the individual songs and sent that, to the TV stations around the world, and that, that would fulfill that obligation. George Harrison. So, I mean, that was the idea. We'd send them to America also, because we thought, well, we can't go everywhere, and we'll send these things out to do, you know, to promote the record. And uh, obviously, like these days, now everybody does that. It's just um, part of your promotion for, for a single. So I suppose, in a way, we invented um, MTV. Friday, May 27th. While on tour in England to promote his latest LP, Blonde on Blonde, The guilty undertaker sighs The lonesome organ grinder cries The silver saxophones say I should refuse you the cracked bells and washed out horns Blow into my face with scorn But it's not that way I wasn't born To lose you I want you I want you I want you So Bob Dylan filmed himself riding in a chauffeured limousine with John Lennon. They were driving into central London to the Mayfair Hotel in Stratton Street from John's house in Weybridge, Surrey. He should have been around last night, John. Should have been, he should have been around last night. Tonight, tonight, is, a, tonight is a drag. Really, Bob? Yeah. Tonight is a drag. <laughs> I wish I could talk English, man. <laughs> Me too, Bobby. <laughs> he can talk American. Hey, Tom, you've heard me talk oh, English, haven't you? I can't never do it around John because no, no, Bill send you know John's they don't like him. John's such a great actor, man. It's a great actor, like, man. I can't, I can't. You can't believe it, isn't me? Remember you said to me I played you a song and you said something about this got to be in. I didn't realize at the time, Robbie told me. He said it's got to be an in, 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 in publishing company. What's the name of it? What's your, you, you know, your song publishing company? Oh, the song publishing what, Yeah, what is the name of it? Dick James. No, no, is that the name of it? Mm. Dick James. That wasn't the name I heard. Northern Songs? Right, that was it. Oh, that'd be right, 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 right. That ought to be in Northern Songs. I, I said, what's Northern Songs? And then I was never told, man. I had to go out and find out. <laughs> didn't we tell me? No, man. You wouldn't tell me? He said, this ought to be a Northern Songs. And it was everybody, you know, a couple, you laughed, and Paul McCartney looked the other way at Tony uh, Ringo. Mick Jagger looked up, and he balloons dropped out of his face. And and, uh, no Rob Roy there. left in the room with a big kill on. He said, hey, Bobby, have you heard this one? <laughs> <laughs> you don't live, live in Texas, man. Yeah, no. Texas. That's some thought. I like them over here. 
I read the papers of George Harrison spent a lot of time in the States. You've learned a lot from George. Tell me about the mamas and papas, Bob. I believe you're backing them very bigly. I knew it would be to that. I knew it would be to that. I believe you're backing them. No, you're just interested in the big the big chick, right? You're just in the big chick. She's got a hold of you, too. She's got a hold of you, too. She's got a hold of everybody I know. Everybody asks me the same thing, and I know what they mean. Do you know, do you know, do you know... They're terrible, man. Well, they'll stone you when you are all alone. They'll stone you when you are walking home. Both Paperback Writer and the B-Side, Rain, were released in America on May 30th. Paperback Writer, written almost completely by Paul, is punchy and well-produced. Rumors suggested hidden meanings or symbol-filled lyrics. The plain fact is, Paul wanted to use the word paperback in a song and take a stab at Beach Boys like Harmony Counterpoint. So he wrote the struggling writer's story. I came out to John's house one time, I remember saying, I've had this idea of someone who's like a paperback writer. And it was, oh, it was to do with something I'd read in a newspaper, and it was something to do with Martin Amos, I think. And he was getting a paperback or something. I'd read this thing. So I imagined myself in that role, you know, dear sir or madam, as the case may be, and I was writing up, you know, you can have all the rights, but just publish me, sort of thing. And I came in to John's house, and I said, look, I've had this idea. What about this, dear sir or madam? I sort of wrote it out like a letter. Mm. And he said, yeah, that's it. And I sort of, I kind of written it. The reference to Edward Lear comes as a result of a critic saying that Lennon's books were a cross between Lear's work and Lewis Carroll. An advertisement for the single in Britain used the so-called butcher picture, and there was no unfavorable reaction from the British public. The two promo films were shown on The Ed Sullivan Show on June 5th. So all of you in our audience can watch it on these monitors up here. It was back in September of 1963 while in England, I first heard of the Beatles and Simon. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's a feature taped for us in England by Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and George Harrison. Incidentally, the Beatles are seen holding photo transparencies of their butcher photos as an in-joke to Capitol Records. Hello, Ed. How are you? Hello, Hello Ed. 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 All right. Hello. Well, I'm sorry we can't be there in person, you know, to do this show, but... Everybody's busy these days with the washing and the cooking. And uh, we hope you like it. And uh, one's called Rain and one's called Paperback Writer. Paperback Writer!
the Beatles, a wonderful tour of our country, starting August 12th out in Chicago. And now, preceding Robert Goulet and Toadie Fields, this word about Anison. June 11th, Paul McCartney tells Disc and Music Echo that he doesn't like their American image. He says, I'd hate the Beatles to be remembered as four jovial mop tops. I'd like to be remembered when we're dead as four people who made music that stands up to be remembered. On the 16th, the Beatles made a rare live appearance on BBC TV's Top of the Pops, performing both songs. Also making surprise guest appearances on various local programs. The next day, The Mirror reports that Paul McCartney has bought a 183-acre dairy farm in Scotland overlooking the Mull of Kintyre. He always wanted a farm in Scotland. It may even be a good name for a song someday. Back in the USA... On June 20th, the Beatles put out their 10th release, or 15th, according to how and what you count. The Yesterday and Today album was released in the U.S., but the package is immediately withdrawn. After a public outcry over the infamous butcher photo on the cover as being too offensive. The jacket cover for the Yesterday and Today album is called Too Grizzly, Too Far Out. The cover showed the Beatles dressed in butcher smocks, holding chunks of raw meat and decapitated baby dolls. John explains... We took the pictures in London at one of those photo sessions. By then, we were really sort of, you know, beginning to hate it. A photo session was a big ordeal, and, you know, you had time to look normal, you know, and you didn't feel it. This mad photographer who was a sort of Salvador Dali fan, we always had a, a photographer who was, you know, our favorite at the time, and he was the one that he came... We got to the studio and was for a session. As usual, we were bored stiff. We looked bored most of the time, those pictures, those periods, you know really hated taking, having photographs took. And he brought along all these babies and pieces of meat and doctor's coats, so we really got into it, and that's how we felt, yeah. We well, said, great, you know, because we, we like surrealism, you know. And uh, we liked it, or I remember I liked it. And there we were supposed to be, you know, sort of angels. I wanted to show some, you know, that we were aware of, of, of life. I especially pushed for it to be an album cover, you know, just to break the image, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it got out in America, and they printed it, about 60,000 got out, and then there was some kind of fuss, as usual. 
the message came back that Capital had withdrawn it and they wanted another cover right away. It was fate accompli, you know, we couldn't do anything about it. I was particularly mad because I really was pushing to get that out. Because like the naughty boy I am, I wanted to break the Beatles' image then, you know. You know, I don't like being locked into one game all the time, you know. And they were all sent back in or withdrawn. The replacement cover, unlike the original, was no eye-opener. And they stuck that awful-looking picture which you have in front of you of us sitting, looking just as deadbeat, but supposed to be happy-go-lucky force. Now it's, a, you know, you pay $200 to get it. Interesting side note from that album. I've always wondered why the album Yesterday and Today only had a couple of songs from Revolver plus the leftover songs from Rubber Soul. That's because in early May, Capitol made an application to EMI to release a U.S.-only album of Rubber Soul and Revolver recordings, which had already been completed and mixed. So on May 12th, George Martin, Jeff Emmerich, and Jerry Boyce made U.S.-only mixes of Dr. Robert, I'm Only Sleeping, and And Your Bird Can Sing to ship off to the United States for release on yesterday and today. Those mixes would later be improved upon, and the mixes of those songs on the British Revolver and the Revolver CD are very different than the American Yesterday and Today mix. Amidst all this album cover controversy, a cut from a previous album, Rubber Soul, was making a big splash. Never released as a single. See, there are songs which... Paul McCartney. We, we like, but we wouldn't like to have out as singles. Because it's a very funny thing about putting a single out, you know. I think we always used to think, um, for a single, we'll have to have something that's pretty fast. I don't know why, you know, just because they always sounded like the singles, you know, the, the faster ones. And so when, Mich when we did Michelle... And we all thought it was okay, you know, but we just didn't want it out as representative of us uh, at the time. But proving itself a popular tune anyway, Michelle, dating back to Paul's teen years. I'm a big fan of Chet Atkins, and this finger-picking thing Chet used to do was very big with the guys in Liverpool, because you had to be able to play guitar to do what he did. Everyone else could thrash around and, you know, bebop a lula or something, but... You had to know what you were doing. And there were only a couple of guys in Liverpool who could do it. So this was kind of slightly my version of this sort of finger-picking, a little bass line, a little tune on the top. And um, what I used to use it for was we used to get invited to these very artsy parties. And we weren't really artsy. We were kind of working-class boys, you know. But John was at our college, so we'd go along to one of the tutor's, um, you know, do's. And we'd be a little bit out of our element. We'd be enjoying it, but the people there would be sort of, you know, painters or symphony conductors or something. It was all, and we'd be a little bit the scruffs, you know. So one of the things I used to occasionally take a guitar and sort of sit in the corner, looking very enigmatic and French, and so, with a black polo neck, and, and just hope some of the birds would go, "Wow, he's a French guy," you know. Must get to meet him. So they never did. McCartney was just fooling around with friends who were fluent in French when in the middle of his Maurice Chevalier routine, the name Michel came to him in song. So anyway, I had the tune, and years later, John said, remember that silly French thing you used to do? I said, yeah. He said, well, you should put words to that, you know. So I did.
Spark album cover controversy on their way around the world. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but beetles have nowhere to lay their heads. Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't even (laughs) lying.